This episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and so Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. Whether you're the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign or the Environmental Voter Project, if you bank a target and you know they've already voted, you don't need to spend any more time or money on them. And that's really, really exciting. In Pennsylvania has already seen 323,000 of these environment first voters show up. And that's a lot of people that we and other groups don't need to talk to anymore. We're in the final stretch of the 2020 election. Exhausted yet? While some of us may be tiring, campaigns are forging ahead and even picking up steam as voters begin to cast their ballots. At least 40 million Americans have already voted nationwide, with 12 days to go until Election Day. Control of the Senate is very much in play. While in the race for the White House, Joe Biden remains ahead of President Trump in the polls, but Democrats are staying on their toes. Are environmental issues mobilizing voters the way some analysts anticipated? Are fossil fuel interests holding sway this election cycle? And what does the rise of big green political influencers look like? We discuss all of this and more in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. And with me is my Democratic co-host, Brandon Hurlbut. He is a partner at Boundary Stone Partner, a clean tech investor, and former chief of staff at the Department of Energy under Secretary Chu. Brandon, you're big in the political scene this year. How are you feeling right now? So excited. Julia, we have a major event for clean energy for Biden. We passed 10,000 volunteers and $3 million raised. We're celebrating that on October 29th with Governors Newsom, Governor Lujan, Governor Whitmer, and Governor Inslee are all participating. Uh, so if you want to learn more about it, go to cleanenergyforbiden.com, sign up. It's going to be an amazing event. All right. Well, we're going to talk about clean energy for Biden and the rise of these big green political influencers, as I mentioned at the outset there. But uh, let's go to the other side of the ledger right now. Uh, Shane Skelton is our Republican. He's a partner at consulting firm S2C Pacific and a former energy advisor to Paul Ryan. Shane, how are you feeling uh, with days to go here? Well, first, before that, I would say that if I ever invent a better pillow or mattress or something, Brandon is the first call I'm making. He can get a good advertisement into anything. So, so hat tip. To Brandon, um, frankly, I'm, I'm excited for this to be over. Um, I just want it to be over. We all want Trump to be over. So, yeah, we can agree on that. <laughs> but of course, it is not over yet. And that is why we're excited to have our guest, Nathaniel Stinnett, back on the show. Nathaniel is the founder of the Environmental Voter Project, which is an organization that focuses on finding environmentalists from across the United States and making sure that they vote in every election. There are a few people as well equipped to talk about climate, energy, and environmental issues in the lead up to the 2020 election. As Nathaniel, he's got so much data that we're excited to unpack with him. 
We have had Nathaniel on the show before. It was in Sun Valley, Idaho. We were doing a live show for the Sun Valley Forum, and Nathaniel was a trooper, joking along with us on stage, taking all of our questions, and really, you know, sharing some fantastic information on the Environmental Voter Project. And the bar is high for repeat guests. I don't know. We, I think we've had Tom Steyer on twice, and that's it. So, so excited to have Nathaniel here today. Hi, Julia. Hi, Brandon. Hi, Shane. I, I didn't realize that it was just me and Tom Steyer as repeat guests. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm getting some type of like Steyer-like remuneration for this appearance or not, but uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm really excited about this uh, about this coincidence. Nathaniel, I've been getting your updates and it gives it's so exciting. I can't wait to, to learn more. Well, we should note that we have actually had one other repeat guest, and that is Leah Stokes. She is a professor at UC Santa Barbara. She's come on twice now, and uh, we've had some great episodes. Again, all these episodes have been great, and if our listeners have not heard them yet, I hope you go back because they're all still very relevant. Tom Steyer appearing just a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to talk about him some more in this episode as well. But let's give a bit of background on Nathaniel for those who may not know. He is the founder of the Environmental Voter Project. Nathaniel founded the nonpartisan group in 2015 after over a decade of experience as a senior advisor, consultant, and trainer for political campaigns and issue advocacy nonprofits. He's been hailed as a visionary by the New York Times and dubbed the voting guru by Grist Magazine. He frequently speaks about cutting-edge campaign techniques and the behavioral science around getting people to vote. He has held a variety of senior leadership and campaign manager positions on U.S. Senate, congressional, state, and mayoral campaigns. And he sits on the board of advisors for MIT's Environmental Solutions Initiative. So since we last spoke, it was in, I guess, the summer of 2019. To kick us off here, Nathaniel, give us an update of what you've been working on and how things have been going. Yeah, well, I think the most important thing uh, actually took place last year. Uh, as I think all three of you know, uh, we're kind of like the nerds of the environmental movement, and, and we're steeped in the behavioral science of turning non-voters into voters. And you know what? The easiest way to make a new voter in 2020 is to talk to them in 2019, and then to talk to them again during 2020 presidential primaries and local and state primaries and things like that. So what we haven't been doing is just keeping our powder dry for the last 12 or 13 months. We were active in, I think, over 630 local and state elections in 2019 because we viewed every election, even you know, library trustee and dog catcher races, as behavioral intervention opportunities to turn these non-voters into voters. And then certainly throughout 2020, with all the presidential and state primaries and municipal elections, we've continued doing what we're always doing, which is with a, a national network of volunteers we are focusing in on non-voting environmentalists. So people who care deeply about climate or the environment, but don't vote. And then we're just leveraging completely nonpartisan, even apolitical messaging to turn them into better voters. So now that we're heading into November, uh, we're contacting over 300,000 voters a day with this behavioral science informed messaging. And, uh, it's a sprint from here on out, just 12 more days to go. Can you convince anyone in 12 more days? Or like you said, is the work pretty much done and it's just getting people to show up and actually cast a ballot? Or, or, or does some decision-making happen in this, this juncture? You can absolutely convince people in the last 12 days for a bunch of reasons. First of all, even though there are fewer 
undecided voters than there have been in previous cycles and fewer people deciding whether to vote for the first time than in previous cycles, there are still tens of millions of them. I mean, huge, huge numbers. Last year in 2016, there were 70 million registered voters, I'm sorry, 65 million registered voters who sat at home. And so there are tens of millions of these people who are still deciding whether to vote. And then the second reason this is still a a really opportunistic window to talk to these people is because of the logistics of voting. Obviously, with coronavirus and with a, a, a kneecapped postal service, the logistics of voting are a little bit more delicate than they ever have been before. And so that's a diplomatic way to say voter suppression. <laughs> did you like that? Did you like that? Uh, <laughs> and so simply holding people's hands and, and walking them through where their drop boxes are or, or why they need to actually put their ballot in the mail sooner than they have in previous years and things like that is enormously important because in many ways it's easier to vote than it ever has been before, but in some ways it's harder to vote. Nathaniel, can I ask, I've seen numbers that I can't really make sense of. Um, one chart we saw this morning was that younger voters are coming out in droves uh, comparatively to, to what they've done in the past, at least to date. Another number I saw was that Republicans have actually outregistered new voters in certain key swing states uh, more so than Democrats. These are very small data points that I can't sort of universalize. What are you seeing as far as registration, as far as turnout, how that might break amongst environmental voters and amongst partisan voters? And what do you think this all means as we sort of wait for final tallies? Yeah. So those are all great questions. And I don't blame you for being a little confused because a lot of the arrows are going in opposite directions, Shane. First, I think it's really important whenever you're trying to read any tea leaves, you're comparing what's currently going on to prior elections, right? And we're living in a completely unique new time. I mean, there's, there's never been an election for 100 years during a pandemic. As I mentioned before, you know, there's, there's voter suppression, there's mail problems. And so I'll, I'll answer your question. But first, let me just say, we don't really know what to read into all of the data that I'm about to give you, because this is a completely unique electoral experience, completely unique. That being said, let me tell you what we're seeing. Early voting is through the roof, through the roof. I mean, we've had about 41 million people already vote early, which is more than twice the number we had at this point in 2016. Now, those people are trending Democrat and trending young. So the first data point you brought up is accurate. Young people are overrepresented in that group and registered Democrats are overrepresented in that group. Should we read in to that in any way? Eh, I mean, it's not not bad news for Democrats, but I'm not sure it's good news. It could just mean that because of all the rhetoric coming out of the president's mouth, conservatives are now less likely to vote by mail and vote early, whereas Democrats who usually don't vote in as high numbers by mail are now voting more. To get to your voter registration data question, yeah, there are a significant number of states, not all of the states, so it varies from state to state, but a significant number of states, and Florida is certainly one of them, where Republicans have closed a voter registration gap. Maybe not completely, but by quite a bit. And there are a few things going on there. One, 
Republicans have been more comfortable with door-to-door canvassing than Democrats have. And, you know, there are a lot of ways that technology can help you talk to voters, but voter registration is still really old school. Like the best way to register voters is still just to go where all the unregistered people are and to knock on doors. And because Republicans have felt more comfortable knocking on doors during the pandemic than Democrats have, that's helped them catch up in voter registration. The second thing that might be going on there, and here this is more just conjecture, is Donald Trump in 2016 actually got a decent number of, for lack of a better term, I'll call them Reagan Democrats to support him. These are people who had had a D next to their name for 20 years, but haven't really been voting Democrat, at least not on the national level. And so what we could be seeing here, and we don't have a lot of great data on this, is people who have changed party affiliation, but that's actually not going to net Republicans too many new votes. Now, do I know that for sure? No. No, I don't. But it's something that that I think is certainly within the realm of possibility. I want to talk about the the people who did not vote in 2016. And I think this really becomes relevant in states like Pennsylvania, where there are groups of largely white, non-college educated voters who were traditionally Democrat, or or maybe they, they also voted Republican, but they didn't vote in 2016. I think the New York Times reported there are roughly 2 million of these white working class voters who didn't vote in 2016. And these are the prime you know, folks that President Trump could win over. And that's why issues like fracking have become so contentious, because these are people who may or may not actually work in the fracking industry. Hydraulic fracturing, of course, a controversial practice uh, for extracting fossil fuels. Uh, but they may be, you know, sympathetic to it. They may like that that kind of hands-on industry is getting political support from most vocally President Trump, although we should note Joe Biden has not condemned fracking explicitly to the chagrin of some progressives. But again, there's voters here that I think Donald Trump is tapping into and, and could tap into that he didn't in the past. Nathaniel, is that accurate to talk about? And how would you frame this issue? Yes, I think that's ac- that's absolutely accurate. Uh, And I think the appropriate framing for this is uh, whatever campaign you're running for president or city council or anything in between, you're you're trying to get to your win number uh, through sort of a a three-legged stool. One is voter registration, what Shane alluded to. So you can boost the number of, of registered voters who are likely to support your candidate. The second thing is voter turnout. Who are some people who, if you just drag them off the sidelines, they're likely to support your candidate? And then the third is persuasion. How many people who are habitual voters could you get them to change your minds and support your candidate? What we see in Pennsylvania and what we see across the country, and by we, I don't just mean the Environmental Voter Project. I mean like we all Americans who are looking at data. There aren't many Clinton-Trump voters out there. You know, people who supported Hillary Clinton, but now they're, they, they can either be persuaded or are persuaded to support Donald Trump. So that, that's one leg of the stool that's just pretty much gone for him in Pennsylvania and, in, and elsewhere. Where they need to make up for it is in some of the, the places that you were alluding to, Julia, either greater, you know, increased registration of people who are likely to support Donald Trump and certainly uh, non-college educated white, especially men. Are, are, are a great potential pool for that, and pulling people off the sidelines. But 
But, and I want to be clear here, we need to recognize that the denominators we're playing with are not the entire state of Pennsylvania. Campaigns are so much better at precisely, you know, individually identifying who their targets are. And, you know, when we look at 2016, Trump won 2.97 million in Pennsylvania. Clinton, I think, won 2.93 million. Third parties won like 300 or 400,000. So if you're the Biden campaign or you're the Trump campaign going into 2020, you think of those numbers and you think, okay, we got to get from 2.9 plus up to like 3.3 million or 3.4 million to hit our likely win number. And that's all they care about is where are we going to find those extra 300, 400,000 voters? And they probably know in a like creepily accurate way <laughs> who the like 700, 800,000 voters are that they need to get those votes from. And those 700, 800,000 people are the only ones they care about. One point I, I want to make on that is that uh, one of the benefits of Democrats voting early is it enables your get out the vote operation for election day. Your universe is smaller. There are less people you have to contact and it makes it more effective. Um, Nathaniel, I'm interested in how many voters who haven't voted historically, have you been able to pull off of the sidelines uh, and vote in these key states? I'd love to hear some of the updates on, on the progress that you've made. Yeah. So uh, as a reminder at the Environmental Voter Project, we only target the non-voting environmentalists or the people who are unlikely to vote. So what does that mean in a presidential election? These are the worst of the worst voters. If you're unlikely to vote in a presidential election, it essentially means you've never cast a ballot for anything before in your entire life. And we have already banked, so we've already gotten to vote early in our 12 states, over 160,000 of those first-time environmental voters. A huge, huge number. Congratulations. Congratulations. Thank That's you. Amazing. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it, I, I wanted to press two of those points because I'm, I'm curious. Um, so you mentioned 12 states, and I think that number obviously makes sense because I think we both know about 35 states don't really matter in the outcome of a presidential contest. So when you look at some of these early voting numbers, are those running up tallies in states that don't matter? Or are you seeing a lot of early voting in states that will end up mattering to the outcome of the presidential contest or key Senate races? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really being run up in important states. So, I mean, I can give you some data right now, not just about the non-voting environmentalists that we're targeting at the Environmental Voter Project, but just all people in a state who we've identified as listing climate or the environment as their top priority. And I can tell you in Arizona, 190,000 of these wow. climate first voters have already voted. That's 25% of those climate first voters have already showed up, whereas only 15% of all Arizonans have showed up. So environmentalists are turning out at, at sort of 50, 60, 70% higher turnout rate than registered voters in Arizona. In Florida, in Florida, the state where everything's decided by like 30,000 votes, 716,000 of these environment first voters have already voted. They have already voted. Now, again, I want to be clear. Obviously, I'm excited by these numbers, but I think it's important to, to, to insert a really big caveat. Uh, what we don't know is whether these are people who otherwise wouldn't have voted, right? Like by definition, 
if you're voting early, you're probably not undecided, right? If you're undecided, you're probably going to hold on to your ballot. But as Brandon mentioned, simply from a, an efficiency point of view, whether you're the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign or the Environmental Voter Project, if you bank a target and you know they've already voted, you don't need to spend any more time or money on them. And that's really, really exciting. I mean, Pennsylvania has already seen 323,000 of these environment-first voters show up. And that's a lot of people that we and other groups don't need to talk to anymore. Can I ask about that a little bit more? Uh, again, just I, I see Pennsylvania coming up in the news so often, so I do want to like put it out there for our listeners. You know, I mentioned these voters before who President Trump could tap, who may be sympathetic to the fossil fuel industry. But we should also know that there are a lot of voters, I think the people you're talking about, who are very wary of that industry. And again, I come back to this because we are an energy and environment podcast. And so I'm curious, are you seeing really compelling polling on that side, that if you are a leader in Pennsylvania today and you push back on some of, um, you know, hydraulic fractoring and maybe pollution and then really push an environmental agenda, that that will, in fact, benefit you, that that is happening in the state. And we shouldn't just, you know, paint the state with a broad brush and maybe look to the past too much because things are, in fact, shifting. So could you shed a little more color on that? Yeah. And I think I think you're right to frame it, Julia, as, you know, when are we painting something with a broad brush and when are we talking with the, the precision that we ought to be? Uh, certainly, if you look at statewide polling data in Pennsylvania, likely voters oppose fracking by, by fairly significant margins, depending on how it's asked, depending on you know, whether you're talking about a ban or, or not a ban or something like that. Usually there's anywhere from a 10 to 20% split you know, a 10 to 20% gap. So when you look at the entire state, yeah, it's a state that opposes fracking. Similarly, if you look at a lot of these non-voting environmentalists, hey, yeah, surprise, surprise, environmentalists don't like fracking that much. And so, yes, there is this enormous potential pool, this, this pool of latent political power that environmental leaders could tap into. That being said, you know, it, even though I absolutely hate fracking. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to be uh, politically precise and politically honest and come back to that point that I made before. You know, if you're Joe Biden or if you're Donald Trump or if you're running for Congress, even in Allegheny County, you know, fracking capital of the world, you're not worried about the entire denominator of likely voters. You're worried about this, this thin slice of people who are still persuadable or this thin slice of people who haven't voted before and you can pull them off the sidelines. And my guess is, even though I, I strongly disagree with Joe Biden when he says, you know, I'm not going to ban fracking, my guess is they're seeing something in their polling data because they're not focused on, you know, all 8 million people in Pennsylvania or 8 million registered voters. They're focused on those 700,000 people who can get them from 2.9 up to 3.3 or 3.4 million, which is their win number. That was, that was my takeaway from the vice presidential debate with Kamala Harris and, and, and uh, Pence, Mike Pence, was that he really went after you know fracking the Green New Deal and drew a lot of that incendiary language out that really seemed like was for an audience of 
several thousand people in Pennsylvania, if I had to really say. And it was so interesting to see. And I don't know, you know, people on Twitter were like, you know, there's 18,000 people in the fracking industry. Like, that can't be what they're going after. But I think there's a bigger point about people who are sympathetic to the industry as well that you have to also account for. But I just thought that's interesting to hear you put some more detail out there because it's being reflected at the highest levels of campaigning right now. And I was wondering why. I would think of this, I would think of like the fracking discussion in Pennsylvania, kind of like how everybody was always obsessed with ethanol in Iowa for years, because like there were people who grew corn and winning Iowa was important. And there's this like weird little niche issue that everybody obsessed about, usually for bad reasons, because it had this, this outsized political impact. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I also part of the thing that makes my head explode as someone who works more in policy than in politics is that a president can't ban fracking. And and I think most people don't know that. And so, you know, it, it, the reason that a policy person doesn't do as well in an election is you'd say, well, this is a moot point. I don't have the ability to do that. So it doesn't really matter. But of course, they don't. They spend a lot of time thinking about exactly how to say, I won't ban fracking. Um and I think you're probably right. It's based on polling and, and voter turnout. But that's the kind of stuff about campaigns on, on any issue that just drive me completely insane, at least in Iowa. While I think the ethanol issue is one of the dumbest issues um, that the federal government has, has labored over for the last, I guess, since 2007, um, it, it is something a, an administration can have a meaningful impact on. Fracking is, is not, which makes it such a, a funny thing you know, that comes up in every environmental and climate debate. But we could ban fracking on public lands. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you can just not permit it if you're so inclined. <laughs> right? I mean, this is, so it, it's it, yes, absolutely. But I think a lot of the fracking, I think the reason, you know, output increased so much from 2007 to 2019 was that most of this was on state lands or private lands. And so they didn't have to go through that federal process to get their permits, stuff that no one cares about during a debate, but something that, you know, as a policy person, you can't help but reflect on a little bit when you watch the debate. Speaking of fracking, Nathaniel, do you have any data on my favorite topic of Texas? Because I want to make Shane nervous about our bet that we made, uh, where I really stuck my neck out and said Biden would win Texas straight up. People said I was crazy. My wife thinks I'm insane and she's from Texas. But you look at these numbers in Harris County, look out. Pretty exciting. What do you got for Texas, Nathaniel? Well, uh, well, first of all, just a, a big caveat. Texas is not one of the 12 states that the Environmental Voter Project works in. Uh -huh. uh, but it was the, the last expansion state that, that we didn't expand into. It, it, we want to expand into their next year because there's a, a huge, huge number of non-voting environmentalists. That being said, I, I do know a lot of the data in, in Texas. First of all, oh man, I mean, you like shut your eyes and throw a ball and chances are you're going to hit a non-voting environmentalist. Like they're just everywhere. And so, you know, when- And are they conservationists? Can I just ask a quick question on that? Because last episode we had on Trammell Crow, who has the founder of EarthX, and he talks about conservationists being huge in Texas, but they don't fit into the traditional environmentalist label. So are those the kind of people you're talking about? Some of them are. Some of them are. Some of them are conservationists. Uh, conservationists. Uh, but a lot of them are also, you know, Latina grandmothers who are worried about climate change. Uh, and in many ways, that's the, you know, it, 
you know, for for years in the 80s, you know, the the symbol of environmental groups was, you know, the polar bear. Uh, If there should be a symbol of like the climate movement or who the typical climate voter is now, you know, it's a Latina grandmother in the Southwest. This is no longer like a yuppie issue. And so when, when we look at the electorate in Texas, it's much more of a turnout play than it is a persuasion play. As Colin Allred and Beto O'Rourke say all the time, like Texas isn't a red state, it's a non-voting state. And boy, are they right. Now, what will happen in two weeks? I don't, I don't know, Brandon. I don't know. I'll, I'll say this. Uh, it's never a dumb idea to pay attention to the travel schedules and expenditures of national campaigns. And the fact that, you know, Texas is never going to be a tipping point for Joe Biden or Donald Trump. It's never going to be a tipping point state. And the fact that they're starting to spend money there means something. They're seeing something there. And it's not just that the state house is important. I hope you're wrong, Nathaniel, because I think, you know, without data to support this claim, I'll say that steak tastes better and cuts more smoothly when someone else pays for it. And in this case, I want that that someone else to be Brandon. But um, I, I wonder, too. And again, <laughs> you look at the polling and, and I don't think anyone can make a case based on polling that, that Joe Biden could possibly lose this election based only on, on the poll numbers. But then when you look at um uh, you know, what Hillary Clinton did, spending money in Arizona and New Mexico, because why bother with Michigan and Wisconsin? They're already put away. Doesn't that ring alarm bells for some on the left who 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 understand that going after states to build foundations that you don't need in the current election might not be the best approach? That was only four years ago. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Now, to be clear, I mean, you accurately describe me uh, or at least allude uh, to me as someone on the left, even though I run. But I, I want to be clear, I run a nonpartisan organization. Sorry, that, that didn't even mean to, I didn't even mean to imply that. I just meant <laughs> if you're thinking about the election in that way. No, no, I'll take it. I'll take I mean, it. some of that pain is, is Biden sitting on like four hundred thirty two million dollars of cash on hand. Yeah, yeah. But Brandon, you got, it's insane. But, 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 but that's what the DSCC is for. That's yeah. what the DNC is for. That's what super PACs are for. Like, there is no way in hell if Joe Biden wins Texas, like he's already won Georgia, he's already yeah. run North Carolina, he's already won Arizona. 100%. And I, I think so many campaigns and consultants get so donor obsessed, by which I mean donors, rightly so, are often obsessed with efficiency, which essentially is like... How much money does it cost per vote that you're getting? And as Brandon brought up, the Biden campaign is getting to a point in a lot of these states where they have so much money and there's so little ad inventory left that the return on investment for their spend in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania is falling off a cliff. So Brandon, I think you're right that that's why they're going to these other states. But I agree with Shane that even though that's what they're thinking, It's a bad idea because if you're the Biden campaign or the Trump campaign for that matter, your goal is not to really efficiently get 49% of the vote. Your goal is to win. And if the last 10,000 votes cost you a thousand bucks a pop, I don't care. That's what you spend. You be as inefficient as possible because your only goal is to get 270 electoral votes. And so 
you know, if I were the Biden campaign, I wouldn't be going to Texas. If you want to expand the map, you know, go to Ohio and advertise in Toledo so you can bleed into Michigan or advertise in Youngstown so you can bleed into Pennsylvania. Go to Georgia so, you know, and advertise in Savannah so you can bleed into Florida and things like that. Like, yeah, Texas does scare me. It, it, you know, it, if I were a Biden supporter, Texas scares me. Do you know, uh, Nathaniel, how Biden's uh, Michigan Cherries ad did? It was an explicitly climate-related ad. Uh, that seemed to be going after the kind of voter that you might be talking about here, um, an environmental voter. In this case, it was a you know a cherry farmer talking about how their crops have been affected. Is that the kind of compelling message you think that they should be you know hammering a little bit more in places like Ohio or elsewhere? Uh, or Iowa. Yeah. Well, actually, let's play a quick clip of that Cherry's ad for context. There's a great deal of uncertainty in being a farmer. We're having more challenges in tart cherries than ever before. As I think about my grandchildren and the world we live in, I think it's very important to adopt measures to mitigate climate change. I'm John King. I'm from Central Lake, Michigan, and I'm a fruit farmer. So, Nathaniel, what do you make of that? So first, I, I want to be clear about my area of expertise and, and where I'm just sort of shooting from the hip. Uh, I know a lot about which messaging is good at changing voting behavior. I know less about which messaging is good at changing people's opinions and changing their minds. That being said, I am certainly aware of a whole bunch of research that shows when you talk about climate change, not as climate change, but instead as an agricultural issue, or a public health issue, or a national security issue, or as a jobs issue, it is far, far more powerful as a persuasion message. So although I don't have any hard data on the impact of that particular ad, I do know from previous cycles, and even from presidential primaries, that that is precisely the type of ad you want to run if you have a persuasion goal, if you're trying to get people who are kind of iffy on your candidate to support him or her based on a climate change message. And it wouldn't surprise me in the least if we see, you know, people like Teresa Greenfield running for Senate in Iowa using messaging like that. Like that's that is an appropriate way to talk about these issues in uh, in agricultural places. I want to touch on the rise of, of the big green donors, because I think this election has been stunning in that regard. And I'll throw out some numbers here and then Nathaniel gets your your thoughts. So Open Secrets tracks a lot of this data um, and they have, first of all, some of the top oil and gas industry contributors. Energy transfer equity is uh, ranked first in this list with 13 million in contributions. This is the company behind the embattled Dakota Access Pipeline and other pipelines. Uh, the CEO of Energy Transfer Equity, uh, Kelsey Warren, donated uh, $10 million to a pro-Trump super PAC uh, separately. Then secondly, we have Coke Industries on the sort of oil and gas side of the ledger. Uh, overall, NPR reported this week that big oil has poured more than $150 million into this election, with more than two thirds going to President Trump and Republicans. And after the economic crash this year, as just sort of a symbol of that tight relationship, President Trump had oil executives over to the White House to discuss the economic recovery. So we know very much where affiliations lie. 
But it's not just fossil fuel companies that are spending big. Uh, Lisa Friedman reported at the New York Times that climate-driven donors have pumped 15 million plus into Democratic presidential candidate Joe Biden. Uh, this is not as big as the fossil fuel industry contributions, but it is still big. These are groups like Give Green, Climate Leaders for Biden, and drumroll, Brandon's group, Clean Energy for Biden. Um, and this comes on top of other environmental groups like the League of Conservation Voters, Environment America, and our DC Action Fund, and others. Um, then there's Next Gen Climate Action Committee, which is created by uh, Tom Steyer. You know, he ran for, for president in the Democratic primary, uh, dropped out, but has still been incredibly involved. Latest figures I saw there was that he has personally put $54 million into Democratic campaign groups this year. That doesn't include money for his own campaign. That's according to uh, NPR. So Next Gen, Tom Steyer. Of course, big climate agenda there, spending big. So, Nathaniel, what do you make of this? Do you have any insights on the rise of big climate donors? Is this is this unique? Is this getting voters out? What's the what's the result? It's absolutely getting voters out. I mean, there's no denying that uh, persuasion, registration, and turnout costs money. This stuff costs money, and my guess is, to varying degrees, all of us might agree that politics and government would be a more efficient and fair marketplace if we got a lot of this money out of the system. And God knows that ever since 2010 and Citizens United, uh, it, it, it has just completely changed the way politics is run and policy is made. But uh, you can't unilaterally disarm. So even though I think it's important to understand that a lot of the money on the green side is grassroots and coming from a lot of small donations. Not all of it is. Some of it's coming from people with big bank accounts writing big checks. And uh, I'd rather they be doing that than sitting on the sidelines. We're not facing a small, inconsequential set of problems here. We're facing an existential crisis, an existential crisis. And we need to use all of the weapons in our arsenal to fight for what we believe in. Yeah, just such a stunning amount of money going into an election that will be over in a matter of days now. Of course, it will change the course of history. But then you just look at what needs to be done in rebuilding the American economy. And you're just like, oh, if only a portion of this could just collectively be put aside to like fixing issues, it would just be satisfying, I guess, in some regard. But I, I take your point that politically, it's, it's a smart move. Yeah, and I would say, I mean, Again, all of this is with the huge caveat that I think our political marketplace would be far more efficient and fair if we figured out a way to get big donors and certainly corporate money out of it. Absolutely. But, but three, four, five billion dollars spent on a political campaign, yes, that's an enormous amount of money. But compared to the trillions that are being spent on a lot of policy initiatives, this is actually a really efficient point of leverage for getting environmental leadership. Like politics is still a pretty efficient return on investment. If you get the right political leadership, not just at the federal level, but the state and local level, really significant societal changes can happen. Really significant changes. Yeah. I think we are looking at an $11 billion election this year. Is that right? I think it's, it's, it's high. That that could be right. Four billion, eleven billion. What, you know, what, what's a few billion here? Or there? Pretty no, soon, you're, you're talking I'm real sure money. Right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> well, what about the states? And, and let's talk about the Senate because I think it's really 
interesting and exciting. And I'm curious to see how this environmental voter work is playing out at that level, because Arizona, you talked about environmental voters there showing up early. There's a really tight Senate race. North Carolina is now in play, um, you know, uh, Maine and, of course, Colorado. And I think I've seen all the candidates there on both the left and the right bring up environmental issues in some regard. So what are you looking at when you see when you see those races? Yeah. So uh, first, I think it's important for your listeners to understand uh, that, you know, if you haven't been paying close attention to politics, not that that would be the case for any of your listeners, but if you haven't been paying attention for the last four years, like the ground is completely changed. I mean, in 2016, it's a lot more toxic. toxic, That's right. Uh, Literally the ground uh, is more toxic. That's right. Uh, in 2016, 2% of likely voters listed climate or the environment as their top priority. Now 12% do. I mean, I mean, six times as many. And so when we drill down to the states, we're seeing that same dynamic. So just for some, some state-level data here, 89% of Floridians are concerned about climate change, including, Shane, 86% of Republicans in Florida are concerned about climate change. Yeah, that's change. not surprising to me. Yeah. I think that's good. Yes. Yes. Now, obviously, concerned isn't, you know, it, it's a it's a slightly lower bar, but that's, you know, I mean, that's really significant. It doesn't surprise me at all that Trump felt the need to, like, fly in on Air Force One and announce a, a moratorium on uh, offshore drilling in Florida. Like, he, he's no dummy. He looks at polls. Uh, like, there are lots more environmental voters in Florida now. Uh, 76% of Pennsylvanians consider climate change a serious problem. Uh, Data for Progress came out with a series of battleground state polls, maybe about three or four weeks ago. And what they saw was that messaging around bold climate leadership was the single best way to appeal to swing voters in U.S. Senate races in Arizona, North Carolina, Iowa, and Maine. Four pretty important U.S. Senate races. Uh, and so, yeah, th- this is not only a higher priority for a lot of voters, it's also a richer vein to, to mine if you're trying to pull people off the sidelines or get them to change their minds. And we're absolutely seeing that in our Environmental Voter Project data as well. We're seeing all of these first-time environmental voters come off the sidelines. I mean, 53,000 of the first time environmental voters we're targeting in Florida have already voted. They've cast ballots for the first time in their lives, 53,000 of them in the state of Florida. And that's not just speaking to the good work that we do at the Environmental Voter Project. It's speaking to a much broader sort of groundswell that, that we're seeing of rising environmental political power in these states. Nathaniel, let me zoom out for a sec and ask you a question, especially when we talk about these key states, because we're talking about the election in two weeks, but honestly, you know, there's an election every two years and a presidential every four. I am, am of the mind, and I've said this on the podcast before, that I don't view every election as, you know, a win or die. I, I especially as a Republican who cares a lot about the environment and climate, I'm far more interested in seeing my party realign on issues that are important to me, even if you get hit hard one year. Um, maybe that helps rebuild in, in different years. So with that premise, 
Um, zooming out and talking about the job that, that, that the Environmental Voter Project has done and, and just looking at turnout patterns generally, when more environmental voters get to the polls or more climate conscious voters get to the polls, do you have any data or, or even any gut instincts on whether or not in the longer term, I'm not talking about 2020, in the longer term, that can be a useful tool for both political parties? Because it doesn't upset me that, that environmental voters who are probably going to vote Democrat are turning out. It just shows me that there's an opportunity to make inroads with a huge swath of new voters. Are you seeing anything like that or do you think I'm screwed? No, I don't think you're screwed. I don't think you're screwed. I think you need to move to the right district chain. But, <laughs> well, but no, I, I'm sorry. I just mean, I just mean as, a, as, a, as a Republican. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, yes, there is. So I, I'll give you some long-term examples, but, but you shouldn't even write off the short term. I mean, one of my favorite examples of, of, of this, where the growth of environmental voters so rapidly shifted the electorate, which then in turn rapidly shifted how people were running for office, actually happened two years ago in the 2018 midterms with some people I'm sure you guys are very, very familiar with. So in, I forget whether it was the 26th or 27th or 28th, Carlos Curbelo in Florida was defending his seat. He's a fairly moderate Republican defending his seat against Debbie Mukarsel Powell, a Democrat who ended up winning. Two, three, maybe four weeks before Election Day, the National Republican Congressional Committee, so the, the, the campaign arm of Republicans in Congress, ran ads attacking Debbie Mukarsel Powell for taking money from the coal industry. Now, I want to be clear, it was unfair. It turns out she had taken one donation from guess who? Tom Steyer, <laughs> who like invested in coal 10 years ago. But the fact that it was an unfair attack doesn't matter. Like, you know, Shane, the NRCC doesn't have any problems with the no, coal not, industry. Not, no, they don't. No, what they <laughs> saw? Yeah, none at all. <laughs> but what they saw was, hey, in order to win this district, where there are so many people who care about the environment, we the national Republican campaign arm for people, Republicans running for Congress, need to attack the fossil fuel industry. And so what that tells me is politicians go where the votes are. Whether you're Democrat or Republican, there's still one thing that even in this very hyper-partisan environment unites all of us, and that is, boy, do both parties love winning elections. They love to win elections. And so politicians go where the votes are, period. It's the, it's the basic arithmetic of how democracy works. Well, some of what I've seen lately makes me question if, if certain Republicans still love winning elections. But I guess we'll, uh, we'll figure that out in a couple of weeks. I guess my last question, since we have you, is I'm curious how recent extreme weather events have affected this, because it's something we talk about and I think we can see now reflected in the news cycle, but I'm just not really sure if that's a direct connection to them people voting based on these things. Is that something you have any insight on, Nathaniel? Yes, uh, but it's not insight coming from the Environmental Voter Project's research. Actually, Pew Research has done a lot of good surveys on this, and Yale Program on Climate Change Communications has done some good work on this. And both of them, Pew in particular, have a lot of data showing that people who have experienced firsthand environmental degradation, you know, dirty air, dirty water, and experienced firsthand the climate crisis or expect to experience these impacts in the future, 
are, surprise, surprise, much more likely to list climate change as a top priority when they vote because they feel it personally. And yeah, I, I would suggest to you that a lot of what we've seen happen over the last seven, eight months uh, shows how politicians are reacting to voters reacting to the climate crisis. So for instance, when was the last time you saw someone win their party's nomination and then instead of tacking to the center, tack to the left? Like Joe Biden won his nomination and then tacked to the left on climate. That's extraordinary. And again, like he's no dummy. He sees what's going on. There are all of these extreme weather events that were getting lots of attention. He also saw in the polling that there were more and more voters who cared deeply about this issue. And longstanding environmental justice ones as well, we should add, not just climate. You know, things like safe drinking water, I imagine, are still top of the list. That is exactly right. And, and I think that gets into another important point here. And that is, who are we talking about when we're talking about people who care deeply about climate, clean air, clean water? Well, it's no longer like yuppies and fleeces driving around in their Priuses. Like it ain't me. They are much more likely to be black and brown Americans, they're much more likely to make less than $50,000 a year than more, and they're more likely to be young rather than old. And so these are demographic groups that also really need boosts in turnout. They are historically the uh, focus of voter suppression efforts. They don't always vote as, at high, as, as high a rate as the average American. And so Politicians, and in particular the Biden campaign, are, are focusing on these people for good reasons. These are the, the people on the front lines of environmental justice issues uh, don't vote as often because they're always the object of voter suppression efforts. Mm. Well, I want to direct our listeners that they have a few minutes to listen to an NPR segment that just aired uh, today, October 21st. And uh, it's an interview with Catherine Flowers, who's the founding director of the Center for Rural Enterprise and Environmental Justice. And she just received one of the MacArthur Foundation's 2020 Genius Grants. And it's just so interesting because her issue she's working on is raw sewage issues that are creating illnesses in America. And some of the diseases that they were confronting in these communities, doctors didn't even recognize because they hadn't really thought of raw sewage as being an issue that they would have to deal with. And so these are the all, these are the environmental things that we're also talking about here, not just climate. And I just thought that that was a amazing uh, spotlight on a really uh, terrible issue. So um, helpful to connect the dots on some of, of who the voters are we're talking about here and the issues that they're tackling. And with that, Nathaniel, um, we'll leave it there. We haven't actually done a Say Something Nice segment in a while. This is where, you know, Brandon and Shane, our Democrat, Republican, have to say something redeeming about the opposing party. You guys game to take it on? Do you have something? I have one. I'm ready. Over to you, Brandon. Um, my Say Something Nice is to the Republican candidate for governor in Utah. Uh, his name is Spencer Cox. He's the lieutenant governor currently. Uh, and he is running against a Democrat. Um, his name is Chris Peterson, and they did an ad together uh, where it would be it's it's a great premise for our show. Uh, they acknowledge uh, that they disagree on many policy items, uh, but the two candidates running, the Republican and the Democrat, uh, acknowledge the things that they do agree on, which is their love for America. 
certain values that they share. Um, and it was really healthy and refreshing. And so it's all over the internet. I encourage our listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, go check it out because it'll make you um, it'll make you optimistic that maybe maybe some bipartisanship is possible. Shane? All right. Um, I, I was that popped into my head as well, but I'm not going to cheat. I'm not going to piggyback, though. I agree with Brandon that um, that that used to be what I was accustomed to. That wouldn't have stood out as extraordinary, but it does now. And so so grateful to those two um, for taking that approach. Um, mine is to Senator Feinstein. And, and it's not to be clear because I, I'm so <laughs> passionate about the Supreme Court. It's not that it's that human beings are supposed to be human beings. And behaving in a way that's senatorial and being kind to your colleagues is something that I don't think should ever be frowned upon or dismissed or criticized. One can disagree with the outcome of any sort of, you know, political uh, or, or, or policy driven. Or debate. what she said you can disagree with. Oh, sure. Uh, 100%. I mean, for context, she, she you know, praised her colleague, uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, who's in a tight race for his, his Senate seat for, you know, uh, conducting orderly judiciary like nomination hearings, right? Is that what you're talking about? Or Brandon, there's something else? Yeah. yeah. No, that she praised him for rushing a maniac nominee through on the Supreme Court. I mean, I don't care. So I, I don't view it that way. I, I view you know this comment as the same as as yours on the Utah candidates. You can disagree about the outcome that you want. But people should still be polite and cordial, especially, you know, when you're colleagues. And I appreciated that because after, you know, we, we've had some other political instances or, or judiciary committee hearings that, that haven't gone, um, you know, as smoothly with as much kindness. Uh, and so I appreciated that. That's my say something nice, even if it's <laughs> even, even if I'm the only one who thinks it was nice. There you go. Nathaniel, can you leave us with a, a nice thought, however you'd like to take that? Sure, sure. So I, you know, I run a nonpartisan nonprofit, so I'm not going to say, you know, anything about Democrats or Republicans, but I, I want to say something nice about the 41 million Americans who have already voted. And to the other likely 110, 120 million who are going to show up, it feels so good. I mean, gosh, we are all just dealing with so much awful stuff in our lives. And it's rare that someone gives you an opportunity to do something fairly easy and fairly small that will likely have a consequence and will almost definitely just make you feel good. So just like do yourself a favor and vote. You'll, you'll, you'll feel, you will feel awesome. You will feel so good doing it. I promise. You're making me feel excited about it. Um, can I ask you, do you really <laughs> think there's going to be 150 or 160 million uh, voters in this presidential? Because what was there, like 130 in the last Absolutely. Like there was there was 138 okay. uh, in 2016. I think we are going to easily hit 150 million. Now, obviously, crazy things can happen. COVID cases are starting to spike, all that. But like... With- Republican governors limiting drop boxes. <laughs> well, the drop boxes would, would increase turnout for better or worse. But I'm not arguing on behalf of the drop boxes, just that ballot harvesting does tend to increase turnout. Limit Limiting in some cases, I think. There's, depending on what state we're talking about here. But uh, so, yeah, record turnout or, or a major turnout. At record turnout. We are going to blow through 150. That's my prediction. All right. Well, nothing... 
not nothing to do, but uh, a lot more watching and waiting. And uh, I know you'll be hustling, Nathaniel, uh, you and your team there. Appreciate you taking the time out to speak with us. Um, and that's going to end it for our show. This is, of course, Political Climate. And to those listening, hit subscribe if you haven't yet. And if you're a new subscriber, send us a screenshot of your subscription wherever you like to listen. And we will donate $2 to the American Red Cross in your honor. So do that and help us give back as we grow. You can find us also on Twitter at poly underscore climate. Great place to send us that screenshot via DM. You can also email us at politicalclimatepodcast at gmail.com. That is it for now. Thank you so much again. And signing off, I'm Julia Piper.